Don't raise your hand, but how many of you are going through something that is very difficult? Something that keeps you up at night? Something that is consuming your thoughts? Something that has got you worried or concerned? Maybe you're going through something that is unjust or unfair to the point that you're mistreated and possibly even persecuted. If this describes you, you're the reason Peter wrote a letter like he did. I mean, we've been doing a, we're going to be doing a verse-by-verse study through this whole letter. And the thing that you need to keep in your mind is that he's writing this letter to those who are being persecuted. In the first couple of verses, we see that there's those Jews who, who basically came to know Christ. And as a result of knowing Christ, they now are under persecution. They've spread throughout most of what back then was called Asia Minor. And they're there and they're spreading out. And the reason for it is because of persecution. Now, when we look back to the first century, we can see that the persecution came for the mere fact that they were just Christians. But, but Peter seems to write this letter in a general way to not only meet the need or speak to the need of the first century, but also for the 21st century. And I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit orchestrates everything in our lives. I believe that's God who is sovereign orchestrating our lives. Even last week as we saw him orchestrating our salvation, today I want you to see that he's orchestrating even the trials and the, the difficulties that you're going through. And so the only way to overcome the reality of our trials, suffering, and or persecution is to focus on something beyond these realities. So look at the introduction. The knowledge of what our salvation guarantees can bring comfort in the midst of trials and persecution. This perspective helps us to live beyond our present reality. And so this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of flip the passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, last week, we went through verse 5 of chapter 1, and then today we're supposed to pick up with verse 6, which we are. But we're going to begin, we're going to flip the passage, we're going to look at verses 10, 11, and 12, and then we're going to come back to 6, 7, 8, and 9. And so the first thing I want you to see there on your outline is the talk of salvation. Last week in our study, we saw where Peter writes about the role of the Trinity in our salvation. We not only saw that, we saw the guarantees of our salvation. Some of the guarantees that we have in our salvation is that we are promised a new life, an eternal inheritance, and a glorious future. Then in verse t- verses 10 through 12, Peter writes more about our salvation. And so the first thing you'll see there is that the, pr- the prophets investigated it. The prophets, the prophets of old, they looked into the matter of what is called salvation. So the Old Testament prophets had a glimpse of the salvation, which will be revealed clearly through Jesus. So look at verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It's very interesting the way this is written in verse 11, the very last part of that. Look at what it says. It says, the sufferings of Christ, that's the Messiah, he is the Christ, and the glories that would follow. Anytime there is suffering, and this is what you need to think about in your own life. Anytime there is suffering, anytime you're going through persecution, anytime you're going through a trial, you need to realize that there is great potential that glory to God can come out of it. Not glory unto yourself, not lifting yourself up. Now, he may lift yourself, you up in that trial, but the, th- the whole purpose of it is to bring glory 
to him. And we see that even in the sufferings of the Messiah. So the prophets investigated this whole idea of salvation. And we see several words here in verse 10. The word inquired means to search for answers. While the phrase search carefully means to look or examine diligently. To thoroughly investigate. Now some of you are probably CSI fans. They got CSI, I think, in every major city in, I don't know. But anyway, it's all over television. And the same wording that you see here would carry the same idea in which they're trying to do when it comes to solving a murder, when it comes to trying to figure out who did it and how it happened and how it all came about and when it took place. It's the same mentality that the prophets looked at when they looked at salvation. So the prophets knew that a Messiah was coming, so they attempted to figure out the mystery surrounding him. The clues led them to believe that salvation would be provided through suffering. It also led them to believe that grace and mercy would be the motivation for the suffering associated with our salvation. In Isaiah 53, Jonathan showed us this verse several weeks ago. It says, Surely he has borne our our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him, that's Jesus, that's the coming Messiah, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. The word healed there can mean several things. It can be delivered. It can literally mean our salvation. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turn everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. So the prophets came to to the conclusion that from their investigation, while being directed by the Spirit, that the Messiah would would bring salvation to mankind through his suffering. Now, why is this in there? Why are these verses in there to point this out? Here's the main reason these verses are in there. It's because Peter is writing to a group of people who are being persecuted. They're suffering themselves. And basically what he's saying in this is that you are in good company. So this morning, if you're going through a trial, if you're being persecuted unjustly and all the different things that you're dealing with in your life, and maybe it's bigger than you are, you need to understand that you are in very good company, especially as it relates to Christ and his sufferings. So the prophets investigated salvation, look on your outline, while the apostles preached it. The apostles followed the lead of Jesus by preaching about the kingdom of God and salvation. So look at verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves only, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you. And so what this verse is saying, it was not only given to the prophets, it was also given to those who followed Christ. They continued the message of Jesus Christ. The word revealed there literally means something that has been unveiled. Part of the, parts of the message of salvation was veiled to the prophets until Jesus came along. When Jesus came along, he became the embodiment of what our salvation is all about. He was seen as a deliverer. He was seen as the healer. He was the one who was going to set it straight. And that's the promise that we have of the Messiah. And so the, the prophets uh, basically investigated it. The, 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 uh, the, the apostles preached it. And then thirdly, the Spirit revealed it. You see, the Holy Spirit empowered and equipped the apostles to get the gospel out to the world. In verse 12, if you look at the little near the, near the end there, it says they did this by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What does that tell us? It says he was orchestrating the whole thing. 
He was the one revealing to the prophets. He was the one empowering the the apostles. But not only that, he was also the ones that was showing the need for salvation to those who were lost. So the Holy Spirit, he empowered the witness and he drew the lost. Then lastly, now this is pretty cool as it relates to our, our salvation. Lastly, we see that the angels pondered it. That means they they looked at it and they marveled, this whole idea of salvation. Now, angels do not experience or ever will experience salvation. And therefore, it is a great mystery to them. Look at the very last part of verse 12. Things, in the context of what this whole salvation is about, things which angels desire to look into. That phrase means they look at it and they marvel at it. They're astonished by it. Now, why would salvation cause angels to be curious and even cause them to marvel? Think about it from their perspective. Angels really see a bigger picture than we do when it comes to our salvation. I want you to think about this. Angels, from their perspective, they saw man fall. Do you think the angels had the privilege to look into the garden and see man fall when they did, when when man fell? Of course. But not only that, they saw man fall, but they saw and they see man's evil today. And even back then when Jesus came, they see man as a miserable creature. Now that's the perspective from angels. Yet they see the beauties of heaven. They see a father who would send his son to die for those who are evil and even defiant. That's why angels, when they look at salvation, They marvel at it. How can God send his son to a world that is evil, that is defiant? How can can he do that? And then when he sends them, those same evil people, the defiant ones, they brutally beat him and execute him. And yet he raises from the dead. You see, the angels look at it from that perspective, from heaven's perspective. I think what causes them to to be astonished is the love that God extended to mankind. It's the salvation and why it had to come about the way it did. They marvel at this love extended to humanity. They marvel at this salvation. You see, Peter wanted those who were suffering persecution, those who were in the midst of trials, to know the greatness of their salvation and the greatness of God's love towards them. That's what he was trying to do there in the first century, and that's what he's trying to accomplish even today. So now let's move from the talk of salvation to where many of us are today, to the trials of sanctification. You see, sanctification implies that there's a process going on in a person's life. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're entering into a process called sanctification. It's it's directed, it's orchestrated by God himself through the Holy Spirit. But God is working you through a a process. And so the trials of, of sanctification, look on the outline. The perspective of trials. What kind of perspective do we need to have when it comes to those things that cause us suffering and distress? The right perspective of trials must be seen, listen, this is what Peter says, in the context of our salvation. When you look at your trial. He is saying, let the backdrop of your salvation be there when you look at it. And so that's what we find here in verse 6. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Now, when he says in this, he's referring back to when he tells us how great our salvation is. 
that the Father was involved, the Son was involved, the Holy Spirit was involved, but he didn't stop there. In those, other, in those same verses just before this, he says, oh yeah, by the way, your salvation guarantees a glorious future. It basically says you have an inheritance, you're co-heirs with Christ. There's marvelous things that are associated with your salvation. And then he says, in this, I want you, when you look at your trial, when you look at your sufferings, in that, I want you to look at it through the context of your salvation. Now, let me give you some information about trials that we find in Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, look here on the screen. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what does it say? Will suffer persecution. It's part of the Christian experience. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Just turn over a couple of pages. Peter has something else to say about suffering and trials. In 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to, to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't look at your trials and say, how in the world is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? You don't look at it that way. You need to look at your life expecting that it's coming. How many of you have noticed when it comes to the issues of life that you go through one, one trial only to do what? Seem to enter into another one? I, I mean, I've talked about this before, but some of you, maybe, maybe you're someone here today and you're, you're raising your children and you think, if I can just get my children out of diapers, man, everything's going to be great. And then all of a sudden they become two. What happens when they become two? It becomes demonic at that point for some reason. I, I don't know. No, 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 no. But all of a sudden, the two-year-old, then you think, oh, if I can get them to this point, then if I can just get them out of the house. That's where many of you college students come in. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And then you get to college, you and yourself, and you think, if I can just get to my junior year or my senior year, if I could just get this degree, if I could just... But what happens in the midst of all that? Every season of life, everything that you go through seems to have a little trial associated with it. And Peter's basically saying, you can count on these things happening. We live in a fallen world. You're a fallen person. Everybody around us are fallen. We're all messed up. You can count on it. It's going to happen. Verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. He's, he's basically saying, again, in the context of your salvation, remember, you're not alone. Christ suffered also due to the evil that was in this world. That when his glory is revealed, that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. What does that tell us? That one day that's not going to be the situation. We won't have trials in our lives. You know what's interesting? Uh, many times in a, in a memorial service, I love to refer to the last part of the book of Revelation. In the last part of the book of Revelation, it talks about the life to come. And if you're to look at the life to come, and again, that's a whole idea of living beyond these realities. When you look at the life to come, there's really two categories of things in the life to come. There's something called the no mores. No, mores, no more sorrow. No more crying. No, no more death. No more pain. And then there's the much mores. The descriptions that we find about heaven. Streets of gold, walls of jasper, the throne of God, all these things in place. And what he's saying is, he's saying, look beyond these things. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 here on the screen. For our light afflictions, 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Now, how many of you are offended by the scripture when it says uh, light affliction? And you look at what you're dealing with right now, and it's so much bigger than light affliction. And you sit there and you say, I don't like the way that described that. But y'all, from the perspective of heaven, from, from the proper perspective in the context of our salvation, do you know what you almost have to call it? A light affliction compared to what's to come. You see, the proper perspective of trials we find in Scripture is to look forward, is to look to a higher purpose. And that's what we need to be looking to when it comes to our trials. Next, we see the presence of trials. As we've already established, trials and persecution will have a presence in a Christian's life. And in verse 6, there's two things that we can learn about these trials. First of all, there are times of trials, and they're periodic. They're periodic. By the way, there could be someone sitting here today who's not currently dealing with a trial. How many of you want me to have them them stand and then you give them a trial? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it's possible because they've come through something and now they're, they're, they're realizing possibly what they've come through and God has shown and more about their faith, all these things about there. But, but, but guess what? They're going to enter into another, another one before long. That's what, that's what this life's all about. Trials come and go. Look at verse 6 uh, of 1 Peter. Uh, first, uh, verse 6 says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. He's talking about In the context of your salvation, there are trials, and they're coming. And they may be there for a little while. That tells us they're periodic. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Guess what that includes? Trials. Next, we have types of trials. They're various. The word various in Scripture could be uh, translated many-colored. They come, and and another way of looking at it is they come in all shapes and sizes. How many many of you have learned that about trials? How many of you sometimes are surprised at how trials come to you? Yeah, I am. I'm like, wow, never thought that would cause so much grief in my life. Never thought I would have this kind of distress over this. But it's real, and it's right there in us. And, And so we see the shapes. So look at verse six again. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, but now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The word grieved there means distress. Most of us in this room are dealing with something that grieves us, something that causes us distress. Maybe you're being persecuted at work, school, or even in your own family. Maybe you're going through something that creates fear in you. Trials have many faces. James said it himself in James chapter one, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How do you count that joy? How do you look at that and say, God, thank you for bringing it to my life? Most of us aren't looking at it that way, are we? But you know why it says count it all joy? It's basically telling us there's great potential when these things come into our lives. It reveals so much about who we are. It increases our strength in, in our faith, in God, and all those different things. You see, so what have we learned so far about trials? Here's what we've learned so far. Trials are part of the Christian experience. They come and go. They come at us in various trials, in various ways. Now, how many of you have ever heard of prosperity preaching? 
prosperity gospel. You ever heard it? It's all over TV. Matter of fact, one of the largest churches in North America. I'm going to read you a quote from, from its co-pastor. Some of you have come across this on the internet already. When I, when I saw it, it blew my mind. That some, and then I actually had to go and hear it from their own lips. Listen, listen to this statement. I just want, this is someone who's trying to, standing on a platform, speaking to thousands of people, probably millions because it's televised. But here's what it says. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize that when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we are happy. This is the thing that gives him the greatest joy, that we be happy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. And then she said, amen. And many of the people said, amen. That is the epitome of prosperity preaching. Let me tell you why it's the epitome of it. It's because it's me-centered. Because it's not that we are here and we are following God and bringing him glory and he's a central point of our lives. Prosperity preaching basically says, no, it is about me. It's about me in the context of God. And it's not. It starts with God. It ends with God. This prosperity gospel, listen, is a theology that has its center around man and not God. Listen, God's greatest joy, listen, is not my happiness. His greatest joy is that I become more like his son. And I'm just going to tell you, sometimes I ain't happy in that process. And you aren't either because you've talked to me about it. You take the people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. How many of you have ever read Hebrews? The list of those who are in the hall of faith. And it goes down and they talk about this one. And this trial made them strong in their faith. And this one. And this trial made them strong in their faith. I guarantee you, when you get to heaven, if you go try to interview every one of them, would you say, were you happy when you went through every bit of that? I don't think so. You see, the joy, listen, according to Scripture, according to what we just read earlier, Joy comes when there's glory. It, it says the sufferings of Christ, and then it says the glory and joy of Christ. They come later because it's hard to find happiness. L- listen, his son and those who followed him, listen, did not live to make themselves happy. They lived to make God known. But so much of the things you hear on TV, and you know why you have followings like these churches have? It's because they tell you what you want to hear. It makes you feel so good to hear. Oh, God loves me. He just wants me to be happy. Listen, if you carry that theology to its fullest, most of you wouldn't be married here today. You'll get that in just a moment. You'll probably laugh. I hope you will. (laughs) There's times when Tina's not happy with me. And I'm telling you, there's times I'm not happy with her. No, take that back. No. (laughs) Right now is not one of those times, okay? <laughs> but I'm here to tell you, it's mu- life is much more than happiness. Listen, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to look more like his son. Now let's look at why trials come into our lives, the purposes of trials. Behind every trial, here's what you need to be thinking. This is why he wrote Count It All Joy. Behind every trial, there is a potential for revelation and growth. 
So when you're right now, you're in this thing, you're going through this thing, it's causing you, causing you distress, and you're sitting there and you're like, what should my perspective be? One thing that you need to be thinking about is not only the realities beyond that, the fact there's a hope in heaven and the fact there's no more, much more that's going to happen in the future and there's a living hope beyond all that, you need to be sitting here thinking, you know something? There is great potential in what I'm going through. God can reveal more of himself to me. I can grow through this experience. I can become more like his son. So, so the first thing you see that one of the purposes of a trial, it reveals true faith. A genuine faith is a faith that is real. It can be discovered by going through a trial. So look at verse seven. He says that the genuineness of your faith, and then skip down to the, near the last part of that same verse, may be found to praise honor, to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, as I've already said, is a list of people who had a faith that was both tested and rewarded. That's what you find in scripture. However, many of you have been, have been through things, trials, in which you never thought you were capable of going through it, only to look back and rejoice in it because you saw a faith in you that you never thought was possible. How many of you have that testimony? You went through it, Matter of fact, maybe, you, maybe you're one of those, like me, many times. I see people in distress a lot of times and dealing with the consequences of sin, but sometimes they're just dealing with the consequences of life and trials. And they come to me, and, and I'll be honest with you, I look at their situation, and I'm not so sure how I would respond in that situation. And, and I wonder, you know, could, how, could I come through that okay? Have you ever been through something like that? And you came out on the other side, and you thought... I never knew my faith was capable of being this strong. I never knew that, that I could see God in this light, that he is faithful, that he, he is who he says he is, that he will come through. See, that's what the testament of those in Hebrews chapter 11, their testament was not based on happiness. It was based on the fact that they served a living God and they, they wanted the, their faith to grow and they saw their faith grow. Next, another purpose for a trial is that it refines true faith. This is, goes back to the idea of process. True faith is more precious, more valuable than pure gold. But true faith, just as pure gold, must go through a process. So look at verse seven again. He says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes Though it is tested by fire. What he's saying here, he's saying your faith is more precious than any gold that you can find. But he is saying this, but there is a comparison between what happens to gold and what happens to your faith. And he's bringing that comparison. You see, fire refines gold by removing impurities. Trials refine faith by removing impurities. Some of us, maybe the reason some of us are going through a trial is that God needs to remove pride out of our lives. How many of you ever been through a trial? Don't raise your hand. You'll you incriminate yourself. You've been through a trial, and you know, looking at it, going in, coming through it, and coming down there, that God was looking to, to get rid of that pride in your life. Maybe self-reliance. Maybe, maybe you were impatient, and he wanted to grow something. Look, look at James 1, 1, 2, and 4 here on the screen. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, in this case, patience. But let patience have its, per patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Every bit of that is, is talk of process. 
A trial is a process in your life that God uses to bring greater revelation to who, of who he is to your life and also grow your faith in such a way that you're becoming more like his son. So think of this. The goldsmith's goal was to get the gold so pure that he could see his reflection in the gold. God's goal, when he's refining you, listen, is so when he looks into your life, what reflects back is his glory, is his son. That's what he's after. And y'all, sometimes it ain't happy getting there. Job said it this way. But God knows the way I need to take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as pure gold. You know why Job wrote that? He's saying it in the context of what I just said, that when God looks into my life, he's seeing a reflection of himself. I've become more like him. Another purpose of a trial is that it reveals true fellowship. Most of us know that any meaningful relationship needs love and trust to be a part Matter of fact, let me tell you how valuable trust is to a relationship. If trust is violated in a relationship, it takes a while before that can be restored in a relationship. I mean, that tells you how vital it is. And the same thing is true when it comes to our lives. We need to trust God with our lives. Look at verse 8. It says, whom have not seen you love. He's talking about God. Even though we haven't seen him, we love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing it's the, it's, this whole segment of that verse is all about faith. Faith is something you can't see, but you're assured of. It, faith is in a person. In John 20, Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed or will believe. And that would include us. The quote I'm getting ready to read was written in a prison cell which housed Christians in prison for being Christians in the 19th century. It's a short quote. Listen to it. I believe in love even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. Let me ask you a question. Some of you may be going through a trial right now. You're under distress. Maybe you even came here today looking for answers to what you're going through. I had someone come up to me at the end of the last service and she said, that's exactly, I came here today looking for answers for what I'm going through. And God showed me something here this morning. Y'all, that's what it's all about. It's for God's word to reveal something. Even when it appears that he's silent, even though it appears that I've cried out to God, I've, I've called on him in prayer, I've done everything I know to do. I read my Bible, I try to do this right, I try to be faithful, come to church. It doesn't seem like he's working on my behalf. If you were to interview Job right in the middle of all he went through, do you realize it took, he went through years of what he went through? He would have told you, I don't know where God is. But though he slay me, <laughs> I'll trust him. I don't understand it all, but I trust him. You see, our love and trust in God is only realized through faith. So as our faith becomes stronger, our relationship with God becomes stronger and even more genuine and real. Another purpose of a trial is that it recognizes true joy. Happiness, as I've said, is fleeting because it's determined by circumstance, while joy is fulfilling because it's determined by who our faith is in. Therefore, joy can be found in the midst of trials and persecutions. So look at verse 8 again. He says, whom, though not seen, 
you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when they rabble and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know what Jesus was basically saying? If you're dealing with a trial, if you're going through suffering, something that's distressful, something that's persecuted, you're being persecuted, he's saying you're in good, you're in good company. A lot of people have gone before you've been there. Now, you may not be able to rejoice over the circumstances of your trials, but you can rejoice in them by centering your heart and mind on Jesus Christ. Listen, just as faith, joy looks beyond our present reality to a reality that is coming. That's, that's how it's possible. The last purpose of a trial is, is that it receives true assurance. You see, there's coming a day when we will be delivered, rescued from our present reality of trials, suffering, and persecution. Look at verse 9. It says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your soul, the deliverance of your soul. The fact that Jesus, the hero, is going to show up and take you out of all this. You know that's coming one day, don't you? It is. And that's how we live beyond our reality. Charles Spurgeon used to say this. I think it's a great quote. Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. That is a good quote. When our faith becomes so strong, so genuine, that it's almost like the realities of our salvation and what it guarantees and the reality of God, when it becomes so strong, I can experience the joys of heaven right here in this fallen world. Right here in this fallen world. Psalm 34 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So here's the application this morning. Living beyond our current reality is only realized when we begin to understand the reasons for our trials in light of the salvation we have received from our hero, Jesus Christ. It is then that we begin to live a heroic existence living beyond our circumstances. I want to close with this story. D.L. Moody used to tell a story of a Christian woman who was always bright, joyful, and hopeful even though she was confined to her room because of illness. She lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old rundown building. A friend decided to visit her one day and brought a friend who was a person of great wealth. Since there was no elevator, the two ladies began to long climb upward. When they reached the second floor, the well-to-do woman said, what a dark and filthy place. Her friend replied, it's better higher up. When they arrived at the third landing, the well-to-do woman said, things look even worse up here. Again, the reply, it's better higher up. The two women finally reached the attic apartment where they found the bedridden saint of God. The saint received them with a smile that radiated the joy that filled her heart. Although the room was clean and flowers were in the windowsill, the wealthy guest could not get over the stark surroundings in which this woman lived. 
She blurted out, it must be very difficult for you to be here like this. Without a moment's hesitation, the bedridden saint responded, it's better higher up. You see, she wasn't looking to the temporal world of evil and the darkness of it all. She was looking beyond those present realities to the realities of eternity. She, she found the seek, that the secret of true joy and contentment is found in her salvation through her trials. I think many of us have been appalled at what we're hearing there in Syria, in northern Iraq. There's not a week that goes by, almost a day now, that I don't, I don't receive something from someone here in the church or someone out there telling me, do you realize what's happening to Christians in these areas? But did you know that there's great travesties that are happening to Christians there? In Syria, they're being publicly executed. Uh, I actually went to one website, and you can actually see that the execution, and I, I, I had to finally just shut it down and turn away. It was, it was one of the worst things I'd ever seen. Did you know some of those travesties are happening to, to children of Christian families? Y'all, when you look at that, and you start looking at all what we call persecution or what we call suffering or distress, when you look at something like that or you hear about something like that, Boy, it really shows you the perspective, doesn't it? Not to say that what we're dealing with is not tough. Y'all, there's great potential in what we're all dealing with. But y'all, there are people being killed probably right now as we're meeting because they call on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, because they're identified as Christian. Y'all, they're the real heroes of this world. Not our basketball buddies, not our football buddies. Not our favorite historical figures. Those who are out there who are dying because they know Christ. Y'all, when you think about your life, look at it from that perspective that God wants to do a great work in your life. I can't imagine going through what these people are going through. Yet they seem to be standing firm to what they believe in and who they believe in. Y'all, that's what we need to do. I can't help but think that they're living beyond their present reality. And that's the only thing that's going to get us there too is for us to do that also. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this challenge. And Lord, I have no doubt there is someone here this morning that's dealing with something bigger than they are that's causing them great distress. And Father, I just pray for them right now that you'll just help them to realize that there's great potential in what they're dealing with. Father, help them to realize that there can be revelation that can be unveiled in their life. There can be uh, so much that could be gained from what they're going through if they'll turn it over to you and look beyond their present reality. Father, I lift up those there in Syria and those in Nigeria and different places where, where Christians are, are being executed, Father. And Lord, I thank you for those that are models for us of what it means to stick to the genuineness of our faith. But Father, I just pray that as we work through these issues in our life, that we can look through those things and see you on the other side. Father, for that Christian that may be here this morning, doesn't know you, or that person that may be here this morning, doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day to give the heart to you. For those who believe this may be the church home you called them to be a part of, Lord, helping to realize that we welcome them. And Lord, that they can join us as we attempt to, to, to make you known. Father, maybe there's a Christian here as we heard in the last service. It's just more than they can handle at times. 
Father, maybe they get around this altar and just turn it over to you and say, I want a different perspective of what I'm dealing with. Maybe they need a pastor to pray with them. Father, just do in their heart what only you can do. We thank you for what you're going to do in these closing moments. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. As I said, my pastors and myself will be here at the front. The altar's open. Just do what God's calling you to do in these closing moments.